Welcome to Cinemascope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to Cinemascope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to Cinemascope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Andy? Yes? I think we should start by right now and tell the people where we're from. Okay, where are we from? This is the next reel on Rashpixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're kicking off our Harold Ramis series with the 1980 golf classic Caddyshack. 
Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever played 36 holes on it, then gotten stoned to the bejesus belt that night on it, you're the sort of looper who should join us on The Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. And for that, let's head over to Scotland to tune in with uh, Stephen Smart in the land where golf came from. Hey guys, this week's movie was Wild River from 1960, directed by Elia Kazan and starring Montgomery Clift and Lee Remick. This week's winner was at Fegfe, who got it on image 6 and is entered into the Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts Friday, so thanks guys and see you later. So I got this press release a little bit ago, Pete. Yeah, I did, about a film that is at AFM, or was just out at AFM, the American Film Market, looking for distribution. And I read it, because I I, I like to read these when I get them, and it is about this this, uh, horror movie that's being billed as a survival horror-mentary called I Am Alone that actually really piqued my curiosity. One, because it's a zombie movie. We love zombie movies. We love zombie movies because it's a found footage film and I really enjoy found footage films I think there's some really interesting things that people can do with those and uh, three because it happened to be filmed in the town where I was born so, oh Andy <laughs> it, and so it really uh, piqued my curiosity to the point where I said hey what if we actually interviewed these filmmakers for the show did we do that we did we how did actually, we do we, I think we did pretty good Oh, man, I'd like to hear that. <laughs> well, luckily, Pete, we actually recorded it. <laughs> so, wow. Yes, we interviewed uh, director Robert Palmer and producer Michael Weiss, and uh, and they had a great uh, a great many wonderful things to say about their fun little uh, horror-mentary, I Am Alone. And uh, let's say we actually tune into that. Like right now? Like right now. What do you think? I'm, I'm going to just start pushing buttons and hope it plays. <laughs> well, that's what you do every week, Pete, so... <laughs> It's no different. I'm Robert Palmer, uh, one of the creators of I Am Alone. And I'm Mike Weiss. I'm the uh, producer of I Am Alone. And uh, we're like, the, we're, the, we're the head. We're like a two-headed monster. Yeah, kind of doing every job. I was looking at the, I was reading the credits as I, I finished watching the movie, and, and uh, I noticed that. I noticed the head. Yeah, we, try, <laughs> we tried to get uh, creative with some of the credits, so it just looked like it was always me and Rob and me and Rob. There's some fake names in there. I was noticing that, and some you actually cop to. Who was the dude who says, this is a fake name, we know this already? You know, as, <laughs> as if you were ready for somebody to call you out. We had a release, you know, I, I actually went through all the releases uh, for, and we had like over 269 extras, over 300 people involved, and I had to go through them manually, and I saw, and I'm like, clearly that's a fake name. So like, we just owned it. <laughs> we were like, if he's not going to give us a real name, we'll call him out, he'll get a laugh, and somebody else will get a laugh. Uh, you are making a movie here that is, uh, man, it's right in my wheelhouse. Uh, you guys making uh, a low budget. Yeah. Uh, no, I, this was a Kickstarter project, uh, not a blockbuster Hollywood budget. And I'm watching these credits, uh, these previously mentioned credits, and there are a ton of people. This is not your uh, indie romance fair starring, you know, four people and one of them is your mom. What, <laughs> right, right. what possibly could have t- overtaken you? to think that this is the project you should take on? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a very good question for us. I have a reality TV background. 
We both do, but I, I'm still a reality TV producer. And I'm a commercial editor. So over, over the years, Michael and I, you know, we've been working on our own sort of paths. You know, we've, we've been friends since eighth grade. You know, we've been working on our own projects and we still write together. We've written over like, almost, I think, a dozen screenplays together. You know, the original concept was like a $5,000 film we were going to like shoot in the woods, like as bare bones as we could be. And we realized like we have potential to tell a very unique story. Yeah, a bigger story. The found footage camera aspect of it certainly has kind of a, been a, a unique trend to to integrate into the horror genre in the past you know decade or so and even longer really if you look back at the history of it Hannibal Holocaust uh, is probably like right. the first credited found footage film which you know that that controversy was great for that film but it's a little hard now and 2015. It's, it's well, it's a, it's an interesting uh, way to tell a story, but it has been really played since Blair Witch kind of uh, reintroduced it, I guess you could say, to so many uh, uh, film viewers in the last uh, 10, 15 years. What was it about that aspect of telling your horror story here that uh, that you thought you could take on and do something really unique with? Well, I think the uh, the, the cameras uh, first and foremost gave us like uh, great angles, great shot setups. And we knew, um, well, we knew we were going to try to go into the forest and try to go deep in there. So um, uh, we decided uh, against bigger cameras uh, like the Red or the Alexa and uh, just went with kind of uh, uh, small GoPros. We shot on a bunch of GoPros and we knew we did some testing, uh, day and night testing. So we knew that uh, these GoPros could give us uh, uh, the Great. same, yeah, the same look that we were looking for. Uh, from a more expensive camera. Uh, and also, yeah, they helped out with the budget, too, because uh, that was very nice. Was, were these were the only uh, cameras you shot on? It looked like he was trucking around with, what, a little Canon or a Sony or something, too, for some of the night stuff? or uh... We had uh, a, a Canon X8 uh, a 20, um, just like a little prosumer camera. I think the, uh, uh, the I want to say the Paranormal Activity guys yeah, shot they with the yeah. 10. Yeah, they shot with the version before ours. But... Um, uh yeah yeah he, we, we, we ended, ended up one shooting. of those we ended up using seven different types of cameras throughout the movie by design so there were iphone cameras gopros the xa20 uh our uh, adrian uh Sarkowski, our uh, dp he brought in his gh2 uh we had a, a sony um another sony camera uh that we we needed we knew the world Need, could be gritty. We knew that a, a world that we were creating didn't need to look as pristine. Now, we know the cameras we used have limitations, but if you're watching the film and you know it all pays off, you're never going to think about the different types of cameras. I mean, we saw Sicario, and obviously they probably did some visual effects, but they did night vision, and it looked grainy and mm -hmm. choppy, and that's a, you know, a $40 million film. So we knew we had some leverage to tell this, you know, Kickstarter film and, you know, sort of in the grand scheme of things, our whole idea was to, to tell a story from one person. So we knew we didn't need all these different cameras and all these different things. Well, and it, the conceit of it actually sets it up really well. How much thought did you put into building sort of the, the internal, like, rule set of how you choose where the cameras are going to be set up? It was, it, we had to put a lot of thought. It was... All in the planning, like for the town sequences that we did, uh, the Montrose, the city of Montrose, which we love them to death, they 
closed Main Street for us. They gave us like it was at our discretion to shoot for a few days, which is amazing for us. So we knew that with our limited time, we had to know exactly where things were going to fall. Now, they did change a little bit, of course. The sun dictated, the weather dictated, but we always knew like, all right, if we're doing security cams, it has to be, uh, you know, elevated. It has to, you know, it has to sort of look generic, you know, sort of the, the, the grand scheme was we never wanted to feel like the cameras were placed there on purpose. You know, so like if you're, you know, we were in Centennial Plaza, the big, the big square where we saw like a hundred people, it was clear, like we just needed like wide shots to show everything. And then we had our characters in the midst of the chaos to give us our close-ups. It was a really, uh, it was a really um, nice way to tell it. And I thought it actually integrated well into the story, particularly the way that, uh, that our lead character, uh, Gareth's character ends up kind of, um, kind of uh, becoming kind of a key element in the, uh, I guess, the reveal that we find out from the room with Dr. Marlowe um, and Mason as they're kind of having their conversations. And and I thought it was so much fun actually seeing a, a character uh, like, our, like Jacob as he's kind of going through his transformation over the course of the uh, the film, or at least toward the uh, the latter half of it, um, while he's filming, it was a it, it actually ended up being a really interesting way to integrate the found footage uh, camera usage into your story, and I, I liked that quite a bit. Yeah, I want to echo that, Andy, because and and just a specific point because it, it it's really stuck with me over the last two days. It's this idea that that the the found footage and the narrative itself really, I think, work well together. The fact that he has such a slow burn, sort of a, a time release uh, conversion, you know, allows him to film longer. And I think that worked really well. Well, that was the thing. When you said rules, one of the things that, that Michael and I set out to do was, you know, we knew there was a, a gluttony of zombie films, and, but we also knew there was a limited... Uh, amount of zombie films that dealt with like an actual personal story so for us it was like how long and how realistic can we can we prolong this guy's death if he is or isn't the cure you know is the doctor's job to figure out it's our job as the creators to sort of let you go on this journey and his mindset he doesn't know the whole point of the movie spoiler alert is that he doesn't know what's happening you know so he's doing what he was trained to do what he's been doing is shoot his show he 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 thinks he did something bad but he doesn't know that the world around him is falling apart he knows there's things happening so it was really uh an interesting thing for us to sort of develop with gareth and with gunner uh because gunner had to tell a different story gunner was locked in a room he was alone in the room gareth was alone in the mountains you know there was this dichotomy that we were trying to like get across, and I think we did a really good job. Yeah, that's that agoraphobia, sort of claustrophobia. Uh, we're we're yeah. scared for both of them for the exact opposite reason. Yes, yeah. that was yeah. exactly what we did, and you know we had to build that room in uh, the San Fernando Valley, and we shot you know two thirds of it on a mountain in in Montrose at ten thousand feet. I mean that. That was a challenge. That's crazy. Uh, challenge in itself. <laughs> we gotta we gotta talk about Montrose. They were they opened their doors to us. We had our, our friends and we 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 got friends and family. We came there with like this ragtag crew, and we ended up you know like we love. There's so many friends of ours now that live in that town. It was amazing. 
Well, and I saw in the the press release that uh, there was an 80-year-old grandmother who was cooking for you guys every night. So uh, it's awesome, clearly yeah. a, a town that really was supportive of you guys. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. You know, the, the way it all kind of fell uh, in the place was like I was playing softball out here and, and me and Michael had written the script and didn't have a location. We just wrote sort of. You know, there's a cabin right, on a mountain. Here we find a mountain somewhere. And then <laughs> randomly, randomly, uh, randomly, I asked one of my buddies who uh, is our, our, our good friend of our Chase and Bean. And he's like, my family have property in Colorado. And he literally showed us 10 pictures and we had never seen it. I had never seen it. Michael wasn't there. And I was like, we need to go to this place. And we went in 2012 and we're like, holy Lord, like we can do this. Like this is actually a feasible thing and it that you know and they they allowed us to to, to live there and the, the the leonard bean family were just amazing to help us out in the town itself so you you lived in the cabin where we close the crew did the crew did yeah yeah <laughs> you destroyed that place that was great we we the crew lived there we gave that to the crew yeah, michael good. and i somebody donated a pop-up camper so i don't know if you <laughs> but you can see but it was so cold at uh, night i'm not an outdoorsy <laughs> person of all things and it got to like 35 degrees at night and the heater we couldn't run the generator so we were sleeping like maybe three hours a night for like the first 10 days it was <laughs> it was oh, brutal it was it was it was great yeah, it, was it was all generator powered you had an oh, outhouse lovely outhouse yeah with the hornets <laughs> in there yeah and uh you know no one got hurt no one got sick you know but but you know we realized a few days in like we are in a very precarious situation on a mountain like it was 20 minutes up this dirt road and about 25 minutes out of town. So yeah, what we knew is that if the crew wanted to leave, they were kind of stuck. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that's what we knew. <laughs> so so they, can, they can get off the mountain. It was just going to be a big pain in the butt. So we love our, our cast and crew. I mean, Gareth flew something like 28 hours from, from Wales. He flew, for, I think he took a train from Wales to... London through London, the uh, Heathrow to Toronto, then to Denver, and then drove six hours to Montrose to do rehearsals the next day, and and he killed it. I mean, Holy he did. Cow. He was he was great. You know, he was the most annoying reality TV survivalist, and he grew into a really <laughs> endearing infected uh, zombie uh, creature. I, I loved his transformation. He was great. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing. Is you know, it was it was this. You know, how do we unravel this mystery? If, if things are happening in the town, you know, Gareth, we want to feel for Jacob, for Gareth. And, you know, Gunner is sort of the everyday man, you know, trying to run through, trying to figure it out and, and get to his friend. I mean, at the end of the day, this movie is about friendship and amongst other things, you know, like what would you do in this situation? And then we had our Dr. Marlowe, who by design is sort of detached from the footage. He, he's got a job to do. He's got to unravel this insanity and the world around him is fall. Literally this, this old bunker is falling apart. I mean, half the stuff we found at like flea markets and dressed the set and painted it ourselves, you know? Yeah. I was uh, noticing uh, and I, and it actually made me question. I'm, I'm, I, I, it made me question your intention on setting when we are, we're working with a very clearly a video cassette, player and a dot matrix printer in that room it actually made me question when this thing was set was that intentional 
Well, it was only intentional to make the room feel dated. Like if if you analyze the room and and Michael and I love to sort of lay little subtle references. Like the poster in in the corner from one of the cameras is in the fifties. I think in the fifties there was the um, those underground bunkers were were specifically set up by and I'm blanking on the name of the uh, the government organization. Remember the poster. Um, they set it up so we dressed it as like a 19 like if the room just stopped working in the, like the 60s or in the 80s so yeah it was an underground bunker that that hadn't been used in 20 30 years so what would happen when you turn it on what would be there right, so right. it was like they yeah, retrofit right. things so there was like a mix back because they were like computer screens like was it storage was it not it was all sort of to show that this room had a life at some point like mm-hmm. the the picture frames were like painted over so you could tell there was something there, but now there's nothing. So we wanted to give it some some life of its own. The map um, in the corner was those old style like um, Doctor Strangelove maps. So we wanted to like it was key for us to show sort of such a different environment. Again, it was that dichotomy of like the the, the expanse of the wilderness and you know Gareth being center frame and this sort of like isolated room and and uh gunner our mason character just you know sort of fighting not understanding what's happening why why are these things happening to him and why can't i help like i can help go get him i don't feel like i'm useful and then you know but that was also for us by design because we got a sequel plan so <laughs> oh, there you awesome go. that i was that was on my list can you talk a little bit walk us through the timeline of production i you know obviously we're we're very interested in the uh, in the kickstarter element you know there's there's obviously kickstarter sort of gestalt but hearing how well it worked for you guys uh if you could reflect on just how long it took you from uh, you know when you had the idea to get this thing written and funded and produced i gotta tell you we had a little trouble with Kickstarter in 2012 we we did our first Kickstarter campaign we we actually ended up doing two the first one failed 15 um, grand only. yeah it failed at 15 grand we were asking the same uh, we were asking about 25 I believe yeah and um, we kind of realized at that point that we needed to do something a little bit more than just Rob and I so we kind of got together a team of people and and then we promoted we, yeah promoted for like a whole month we, we actually spent a year preparing to relaunch the kickstarter in 2013 so um uh if 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 the kickstarter failed we couldn't definitely we couldn't make the movie at all but we had things lined up if it succeeded we had a few things lined up after it um so uh uh yeah we kind of got everybody together we we got the notion that we wanted to call like all around the world call for you know sponsorship yeah we had and- sponsors Northside shoes donated something like 72 pairs of shoes Zippo for the whole cast and crew. Zippo lighters gave us stuff. Yeah. You know, we were pulling. There was a, a company in somewhere in Colorado did, donated bottles of water. A company eventually in Montrose gave us porta johns because we had no toilets. So, <laughs> you know, we, we were really putting it together. We got luckily mentioned in Entertainment Weekly during our campaign. So that was a random stroke of luck. It was all during Zach Braff's uh, his campaign for which you were here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. That really propelled our, uh, our Kickstarter forward. I mean, uh, without all that, yeah, yeah. like like a lot of a lot of people uh, because of the Entertainment Weekly article came to our Kickstarter and donated uh, uh, to our film, which was great. I mean, we saw a huge spike in in our profit, which was nice. And Gareth, just getting once Gareth got officially involved. 
you know, that was it. The Kickstarter, you know, was was a success. But, you know, the one thing if your audience hasn't run a Kickstarter is is that the key is to be shameless. Promotion. Promotion. <laughs> no joke. That That's the only advice I can give about running a campaign is you have a goal. Your project has a goal. And you got you, one month and you got one month to make that that dream happen. And there will be lots of naysayers. And a lot of people who don't care, and you just got to believe in it that much. That's why we did it a second time. But we had a, we had a good uh, friends and family behind us, so Love. so um, they you know everyone kind of helped out. Everyone yeah. down to our, our our sound designer let us use his house twice to shoot our zombie comedy video that we Kickstarter shot for video. the Kickstarter. Yeah, and it's it is it is a hard one. And uh, was all your funding raised from Kickstarter? Is that was that your full budget? Uh, most of it are at our, our pockets. Our, yeah, yeah. Besides, yeah. Oh, sure. And whatever credit cards you could get, right? Yeah, <laughs> pretty yeah, much. Exactly. You know, uh, we kind of uh, basically we knew we could shoot the film for like twenty grand. Uh, so we figured, you know, at, and that was on the high side. So we figured as long as we went out to Colorado with with a little bit in our pocket, that we'd have enough uh, to get us through that. And we did. We we you know we pinched pennies and we we you know and our uh, cast and crew our cast and crew knew what they were getting to i mean gareth you know knew exactly what he was getting into and gunner and rory our good friend rory you know the only person who who was cast after the fact was dr marla was marshall you know and that was also by design because we shot in august and then we did the marlo stuff after michael and i were editing for you know a few months so you know, it's just, it's just, you got to believe that's the secret. Yeah. Yeah. And Absolutely. I think after, after, after it was successful, um, uh, we, you know, we still, uh, had a lot more to do. I mean, we, we went, uh, to Montrose, uh, and we planned a zombie walk in the entire town of Montrose. And, uh, we had a lot of people, uh, in the town help us out. Um, and it was a big event and it was a fundraising event for the film, for for you know to make awareness, awareness yeah. that that we were coming to town and that we weren't a big Hollywood film and we we're asking for your help and uh, whether it was you know to work on it with us or to you know uh, give some funds so people or can to eat. donate people gave it yeah. generators and they played zombies and they loved it and there was a people didn't want to leave it would be like three o'clock in the morning we're like guys guys got to get off the mountain we gotta we gotta shoot at eight a.m. What'd you do to uh, <laughs> what'd you do to train your zombies? Did you go? Did they have any sort of a zombie university? We had a, you know, you know, obviously with uh, the Walking Dead, they had their little uh, Walking Dead school, and we kind of, Rob and I liked, um, we we kind of liked the zombies uh, uh, more from the Walking Dead. Uh, uh, we liked the the Dawn of the Dead, and and the the new Dawn of the Dead were a little too fast. The twenty eight days later infected zombies, so um, we thought uh, a meld between. The Dawn of the Dead and uh, The Walking Dead would would and we would hold a school and we yeah would literally... we just hold a school and I had like a bunch of you know uh, bullet points out to uh, 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 for for the zombies and we just taught them how to how to walk uh, the way we wanted them to walk. Um, how's it been doing in the uh, the festival circuit and how's your uh, hunt for dist distribution? Uh, our festivals we just got into over the weekend we got into our eleventh festival. Uh, around the world, we've played at the we played in Malta, a country I was barely aware of, in the middle of the uh, I think ABC <laughs> or something. Yeah, yeah. Like right. by Italy, I think, or Morocco. Yeah, below and Italy. We played in Tormelinos, which is a, a very important film festival in Europe. Uh, we were one of the few. I think they have a lot of it's a Spanish language primarily, 
Uh, we played. We're playing at the Mac in the uh, Amazonas. Uh, yeah, in the Amazon, we're playing yeah. in like a week or two. I think like next week we're playing <laughs> wow. in the Amazon. Uh, we were best feature at Horror Hound, uh, Scaricon. Uh, we won awards at uh, RIP, uh, at the RIP uh, Hollywood Horror Festival. We were nominated for like five awards. We just ended up getting Best Director. Uh, Garris, Garris won two awards for Best Actor. has been nominated like three times. So it's it's been very... Yeah, the festival circuit's been, been very good to us yeah, right now. Yeah, very good. So, so we know that's like where the fans are. And real quick, we also played it at a drive-in in August to show the town... Um, and that was one of the greatest experiences for us is like 400, 300 cars on a Saturday night were lined up. It was the first time I think they said since 1969, since the original True Grit, that that theater, the Star Drive-In was sold out in Montrose. So, no and True Grit, because some of that was filmed up there as well, exactly. correct? Exactly. So they, they came out, the fans, the people came out. People came from like two hours away. There was a drive-in in Utah that was like, is it playing by us? So... We we realize the fans are there, so the festivals that sort of circuit. I think that all sort of encompasses it, just like the Phoenix Comic Con this weekend. Like that's part of the circuit for us. We're so excited, and Gareth hasn't even seen the movie yet. He told us oh, today wow. he could only sit through about half of it. Uh, it played in Wales over the weekend at the Wales Comic Con, and he's like, "I only saw a few minutes." He's like, "I can't wait to watch it with you guys." So. We're we're gonna be in Phoenix. We're gonna watch it, do a Q and A. Yeah, and distribution's coming along. Distribution. Uh, we're talking with a few companies right now. Uh, I don't think anything's gonna happen till after the new year. Yeah, but, but, but it's uh, it's happening. It's, it's coming along nice. Yeah. yeah, the more the more awareness. You know, there's there's a few things with zombie films and you know other sort of elements that you know take a little bit longer. But like once you know you see the movie and you understand like what was done and. You know, most people don't even realize how little our budget was because, you know, at least if I if I could say it for myself, I don't think it looks like a low budget film. You know, like we've we've watched enough and analyzed enough. I mean, we know it's rough around the edges, but like that that is sort of par for the universe. Well, yeah, it, sure. yeah I absolutely. I think you you guys have have uh, pulled together a nice uh, uh, a nice tight uh, infected story, and I I had a ball watching it. I, and I'll tell you, I just uh, we, we deeply appreciate you, uh, um, you know, taking a break from the festival tour to talk to our our uh, our podcast listeners. We uh, we sure appreciate you joining us. We we love it. We love you guys. Like we you know yeah. We hope more people can come out and and see the film. And if anyone's out in Phoenix, you know, we hope they come yeah. out to the Phoenix. Our, our show is typically dedicated to folks who can see the movies that we've already talked about. Uh, so that is more of a challenge for I Am Alone. But uh, uh, where can they find out more about it and find out where they can uh, uh, hopefully uh, see when it's coming through their town? Uh, well, right now, everything is uh, we do everything on our website, IamAloneTheMovie.com. And, uh, and then you can go to our Twitter handle. I, I update it all. Uh, I Am Alone Movie. That's the Twitter handle. And then Facebook is uh, Abstract Forces. Uh, that's our company. That's our banner company. But that's where everything is. You can see, you know, trailers, and you know, you can find out our festival listings, and you know, we try to update it as often as we can, and uh, just you know, let the word spread. But uh, you know, we're really active on social media. You know, there's fans out there who you know wanted to play in their town. You know, email us. Let them. The more you know, the more we can. You know, get awareness out there. You know, the the more likely we can get it to play in, in your city. And if there's a drive-in, we we love the drive-in. So much the better. 
That's it works right. perfectly. Yeah, awesome. that'd be great. Well, uh, thank you once again, uh, Robert Palmer and Michael Weiss of I Am Alone. And uh, I should say the, the sequel of I Am Alone, it turns out maybe I wasn't. <laughs> Tell me you're going to use that. I want you to use that. You can have it with my... <laughs> Done. Thanks so much, guys. Thank All you, right, guys. Thanks, for us thanks a lot. I like those guys, Andy. I do too, and you know, I, I wish them the best of luck. I think it's fantastic that they're out there pushing this uh, this film. I am alone. It's a there's a lot of fun things going on with the film. It's a very fun and easy watch. And uh, man, I hope I can get out to the uh, Phoenix, uh, the the Fan Fest Comic Con this weekend, so I can uh, check it out and uh, hang out with them. Absolutely, you you would be uh, there. There is some definition of failure that you would be if you don't get there. Ouch. I'm just saying it's it's not maybe the harshest form of failure. It's a, maybe failure with a lowercase f <laughs> and a capital I, a capital I with a star capital instead of a dot. I failure. <laughs> if you can't go out and see these guys and say I, very very deep thanks uh, for, to these guys for joining us. And I I am really fascinated by the Kickstarter process. Uh, hearing that part of the story really. Um, I think that's um, it's a fascinating journey. So uh, great to see this film, and I hope that many, many more people get to see it. It was great fun. Definitely. We got a little bit of follow-up. Uh, our dear friend Blot, uh, uh, Ben Lott, has come back to us with a, a, a pair of Blot spots, catching up a little bit over the holidays. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. The Wind Rises. I think I will take The Wind Rises. That is a great idea. The Wind Rises, uh, dear friend of the show, Ben Lott, writes... Is a gorgeous film, just stunning. The dream sequences in particular are absolutely captivating. In fact, I enjoyed the look of this film so much that it's the first Miyazaki movie in the series that I could see myself watching again. However, it still has a very slow pace, and I struggled to follow character motivations and therefore didn't form an emotional connection. I think this is just my personal taste getting in the way of fully appreciating what is a perfectly lovely film. Your rank, 73 out of 211. My rank, 112 out of 211. Mm. Uh, yeah, you know, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a Miyazaki thing. I, I'd be curious to know how uh, Ben does with other ones, like that his friend had recommended, like Spirited Away and and uh, Princess Mononoke. I imagine those are at the end of a very long list for Ben. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. How'd we do on Viridiana? Did we get any closer to uh, to a match? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. No, uh, it was, uh, you know, he said, I'll keep this short. I don't think I'm surprising anyone when I say Viridiana is not for me. I like movies that tell a story, but this one seems to be more focused on sending a message. Symbolism is also something that is largely lost on me. So I can't be impartial to this film because I did not enjoy watching it at all. (laughs) Your rank 99 out of 212, my rank 198 out of 212. Ouch. Yeah, so uh, I, it just didn't click with him. You know, it's funny. I was uh, putting the posters for Viridiana up on Pinterest, and I found this poster, and it was actually a really interesting uh, poster because it has, like, why this picture is recommended for mature adults. Um, but it actually has this other little bit here that says, you may not like Viridiana. You may very well hate it. You may find it too shocking, but this we guarantee, Viridiana will strike your senses like nothing else you have ever seen in a theater. I thought that was really interesting, and I thought it uh, actually played well to what Ben had to say, is 
it is a film that is, you know, doing something different. And uh, yeah, maybe it just struck his senses. I mean, it seemed like a film that he recognized it was actually doing something. It just clearly is not the sort of film that he wants to watch. But, uh, you I know, can at least appreciate that. You know, we got to throw in he wasn't the only one. Our uh, other, uh, another dear friend of the show, Per Johansson uh, from the Film Podden podcast, uh, gave this film one out of 10 thorn wreaths. That's right. <laughs> uh, awesome music in the beginning. Much skin for an old movie. Hideous and horrible. Became uneasy when I saw this. Boring with people who are mean to nice people. <laughs> <laughs> One out of ten thorny reads. Per, I'm. I, we're moving on. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so thank you, uh, gents, for writing in. And uh, there, there you have it. We're done. Oh, and I should also say, because it has come up, uh, Ben also reminded us that we had not posted our 2016 schedule of films, and those are done. We have locked them in, and uh, by the time you hear this, they should be up, right? Yes, they should. All right, so head over to letterboxd.whatever.com, uh, probably. It's missing <laughs> a vowel somewhere. Letterboxd, yes, dot right. com slash the next reel. All right, then you can see our 2016 movies, and let me tell you, we're very excited about it. Oh, yes. All right. Uh, Andy? Yes? How'd you like to make $14 the hard way? Welcome to the Bushwood Country Club. The membership's exclusive. You think I'd join this crummy snobatorium? The help is outrageous. <laughs> the madness is contagious. Bad language, fooling around on the course, poor caddying. But this whole place... Caddyshack, starring Chevy Chase as Ty Webb. Is that disgusting man over there? A sportsman who really knows how to score. So, what brings you to this uh, nape of the woods, neck of the wave? How come you're here? Rodney Dangerfield as Al Servant, a big shot. My dinghy's bigger than your whole boat! With an even bigger mouth. <laughs> hey, somebody step on a duck. <laughs> Ted Knight as Judge Smales, a man of dignity. <laughs> and a sense of fair play. I've sentenced boys younger than you to the gas chamber. Michael O'Keefe as Danny Noonan, a caddy who wants an education and gets one. You take drugs, Danny? Every day. Good. Cindy Morgan as Lacey Underall. She's got a bad reputation, and she's working hard to keep it. You want to tie me up with some of your ties? And Bill Murray as Carl Spackler. Uh, just a harmless squirrel, not a plastic explosive or anything, nothing to be worried about. He's not crazy about gophers, <laughs> but he is crazy. License to kill gophers by the government of the United Nations. And introducing Mr. Gopher as himself. I said freeze, Gopher! Caddyshack. It's all about swinging. Kiss me, you fool. But not on the course. Hey, you want to make $14 the hard way? Ah! Playing a good game. That's all he got out of that one. And talking a better one. Hey, I should have stayed home and played with myself. Taking shots. That was a bum shot. And making time. We couldn't possibly think less of each other. Controlling your drives. Wow! And losing your grip. Ah! It is! You! Out! Or the man's a menace! Caddyshack, the comedy with... Caddyshack, Andy, 1980. Uh, this kicks off our Harold Ramis 
film series. It's a short one, uh, probably too short. Uh, this film was directed by Ramis uh, and co-written by Harold Ramis, uh, Brian Doyle Murray, and uh, Douglas, Ken- Douglas Kenny uh, in 1980. It is a uh, it is a film that is seriously deeply close to my heart. Stars Chevy Chase, Rodney Dangerfield, Ted Knight, Michael O'Keefe, Bill Murray, Sarah Holcomb, Scott Columbia, Cindy Morgan. Oh, she's a charmer. Uh, <laughs> Dan Rezin is Dr. Beeper. Uh, Henry Wilkinson. Oh, please. Ann Bishop. Ryerson. Of course, uh, uh, Brian Doyle Murray as Lou Loomis uh, in the Caddyshack himself. Uh, Peter Burkrot. Uh, it's just, uh, it goes on and on. These kids who are uh, all the caddies, they're just uh, wonderful. You forgot what the most important. I don't know if it's the most important, but uh, Chuck wrote it as Mr. Gopher. <laughs> <laughs> I did not. I did not actually forget that, but I can't wait to talk about Mr. Gopher. <laughs> Uh, I was nervous going into the series because I think I've talked about it. I just recently watched Natural, National Lampoon's Vacation. We are doing that show in, as a part of this series. It's the third in our series. And I was not as crazy about it as I was when I first saw it. Uh, and uh, so I was nervous watching Caddyshack. I, I was hopeful that uh, it, it would live up to uh, what I remembered uh, and that I would uh, be able to just let myself laugh at it. And true to form, Andy, I laughed a lot. It's a hard film to step back at and look critically at. It's not a good story. It's it's pretty terrible. Um, it's just, it's very meandering. It's very, uh, just, you know, it doesn't really, nothing really ties together that strongly. But um, I, I think it was, uh, uh, was it Harold Ramis? Um, yeah, I think it was Harold Ramis who actually compared it to a Marx Brothers film. And I thought that was actually a fairly apt comparison. I'm not a huge Marx Brothers fan, but I, I can kind of enjoy that kind of comedy sometimes. And this, to me, felt along that line where you had no real central character. You had a a, a group of characters that you were kind of following on, I guess you could say, misadventures with a loose plot. And I think it actually works uh, pretty well when you look at it that way. It's very funny. It's very quotable. And as, uh, you know, as not critical as uh, as uh, the film is, or as it's hard for me to be critical looking at it, I still found it just really fun and enjoyable. I agree. For me, I, I actually, I think it's, it, you're right to, to some extent that there is, it, that it, it, I don't know, it can feel a little bit disjointed. But I actually think on this watch... Uh, I think it's better tied together than I, I at least had ever thought it was. Uh, you know, this is this is Danny Noonan's uh, search for guidance, right? He's he's like looking for his mentor, and the film kicks off perfectly. You know, we we see his his horrible kind of home life, his just ridiculous home life with living in a house with a hundred siblings. Yeah, right. uh, and and he's the one who kind of has it together. He's got his cookie jar for his his college scholarship, and then he's off to to meet you know his central mentor, uh, Ty Webb. And it is it is what's so great about the humor in in this movie and the way that the that that conversation sets the tone for the rest of the film is just how subdued uh, the humor is. It's just a conversation between you know 
gentleman, so to speak. It doesn't get weird yet. It's it's just naturally funny, right? You can kind of imagine it being just sort of naturally funny. It's an incredibly long shot. It's a sh- it's from across the golf course. You're watching these guys um, walk across the golf course, and and it it does this slow build to the absurdity that is to come. And I think that it it just really sets the tone well. It welcomes us to the film and it introduces us to um, to I you know. Uh, Chevy Chase's character is Ty Webb, who really represents um, Harold Ramis's id, right? I mean, he is the Harold Ramis part, if Harold Ramis was in this movie. Right, yeah. It, it is kind of the... The, the voice of Harold Ramis, yeah, the Zen Buddhist, yeah. but too yeah, lazy just... to actually do anything. Right, exactly. That's exactly what uh, that character feels like. And it does feel uh, Harold Ramis-ish. Um, and, you know, the film has already set up itself as something that's going to lend itself to absurdity. I mean, right at the beginning, we see, you know, the nice, natural beauty of the golf course, followed immediately by the the gopher mm-hmm. as he, um, you know, creates the... the uh, the runs all over the course that he does, and then he pops up and the and dances to Kenny Loggins' "I'm All Right." I mean, right away we're going, okay, this is going to be kind of an absurd movie, and I'm just going to go along with it. And you know, I think you're right. I mean, it is essentially Danny's story, and it was much more of Danny's story before um, before they cut a lot and changed a lot with the improv and everything. I mean, there was a lot more to Danny. And I think especially the relationship that Danny has with Maggie that got drastically chopped through the uh, through the editing process. Well, and I, I and I think casting uh, you know these these bigger, more experienced names, uh, improvisational names, and and frankly Rodney Dangerfield. I mean, these are the guys they ended up giving star billing to, and and that really took away from what I think originally was supposed to was was intended to be a story of the caddies. Exactly. Right, a film about these this group of caddies, uh, based largely on kind of uh, Brian Doyle Murray's, uh, you know, growing up and being a caddy at a golf course, and and just kind of the experiences that he had and kind of what that life was like. That was the initial idea for it, and uh, you know, I think it's okay that it changed, and I think it was important that in order to actually make a successful change, that it actually did have such strong improvisational actors like Chevy Chase and Bill Murray and Rodney Dangerfield on board to actually help kind of create the comedy that the script needed. Yeah, um, that is one of the things I think, would, you know, obviously the improv stands out in this film, but one of the things I think that really makes the improv stand out is it doesn't feel all that much like improv. The improv is done so brilliantly in character uh, that that you you sort of can't tell uh, what's in the script and what wasn't. Uh, and you, I, I find it interesting in particular when you compare characters like Bill Murray, uh, whose character was largely just, uh, you know, the, uh, improvisational. I mean, it was just largely written on set, to a character like Rodney Dangerfield, who had to have every period, every comma in place uh, for all of his lines, because this was essentially his first feature film. Or Ted Knight, who completely yeah. was against improv. Like, right, he wanted right. it to be scripted. I mean, Rodney Dangerfield was all about improv, but he had to come up with the jokes 
kind of ahead of time, work through it, and then have it written down so that he could nail it, mm-hmm. right? Ted Knight wanted the script to be the way that it was. And, I mean, improv is doesn't mean you just show up on set and wing it. I mean, there is some of that, but you still kind of rehearse it and you practice it with the director and you try to figure out what's going to work and what's not. And I think there's a lot of that. Now, I do think some of it on set was actually just, just trying to find it. And I think that uh, it sounded like uh, Harold Ramis was saying that sometimes... You know, in any other movie, you'd be doing like ten takes to get get the actors to to get their lines right. In this particular case, it was ten takes to get the actors to figure out what their lines were actually going to be. Right, and and so I think there was a lot of actual improvisation happening on set, which drove Ted Knight nuts. Um, and like you said, Rodney Dangerfield, he wanted to have the improv, but he wanted to work it out ahead of time. So it's it's an interesting blend of different types of working styles. Luckily, they did find a way to actually blend it together. I think so. You know, one of the things he said, uh, Ramis said, was always trust improvisation. Uh, of course, we plan what we're going to do, but improvisation allows us to create gold material almost instantly. Uh, and and I think you can you can see this with the group of actors that he has he surrounded himself um, with over the course of his films and uh, you know uh, many of his films have obviously the, a lot of the same actors from uh, Bill Murray and Brian Doyle Murray and and I think Brian Doyle Murray is in is in or with most of his films I think the most of them uh, when you look at this group like Chevy Chase and John Candy and Dan Aykroyd and um, uh, yeah, seven. He worked on seven of uh, of the projects with um, with Harold Ramis, and they do a great job. I mean, I think that it's a it's a great group of people here, and I I really this is a good example of I think what you can do in the editing because I mean this film was uh, the way that they shot it. It ended up being well over four hours in length when they first edited this together, and. Ramis admitted that the editor that they had was a relatively young editor and was really kind of doing everything that he wanted them to, uh, both he and and uh, Dennis and, uh, or sorry, Douglas. He was really doing everything that that they were asking. And that ended up creating a very long film, like four hours some, that wasn't very funny. They were putting all the jokes in and they couldn't figure out what was wrong. So they actually had to get the producers to bring on a, a very experienced editor to really kind of hack it down and find the the right way to tell these jokes. And uh, so even though it did work, it still took the right editor uh, just a good amount of time to find the way to actually blend it all together into something that actually worked. And it took the addition of this gopher character. So the gopher character, um, uh, apparently they tried to cast an actual trained sort of animal, yes. <laughs> like a real animal that uh, predictably didn't go well. And obviously there were no... Uh, there were no computer generated effects that that could have done this at the time and i was um blown away i can't believe i did not know this the guy responsible for creating the gopher is the same guy responsible for the original lightsabers responsible for the x-wing tie fighter battles no other than john dykstra that is bananas it's crazy. John Dykstra had been with ILM, and then there's a little bit of bit of a battle between him and Lucas after because he worked on after Star Wars, he went and worked on Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, and Lucas uh, kind of you know had a big 
uh, lawsuit against them for for plagiarizing Star Wars, and and we got the Gopher, and John Dykstra ended up creating his own company, and and hence we have the Gopher. Yeah, he didn't work on Empire Strikes Back. It's possibly his his seminal work. <laughs> possibly, possibly. <laughs> Forget those Oscars he got for Star Wars. This is care. it. I don't care about that. Yeah, it's actually <laughs> funny to hear Chevy Chase talk about him. When I was I was watching some of these these interviews with Chevy Chase, who who I think it's 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 difficult to get a candid moment with Chevy Chase, but there are two things that will cause him to sober up and and not joke. And one is I hate the Gopher. I absolutely right. hate the Gopher. Uh, when people think Caddyshack, they think this stupid Gopher and that song, and they don't think about all of the incredible talent that was on screen, which I think is a, a bridge too far. Chevy, you, you were great. Um, the Gopher was just funny, uh, and the other thing is his uh, is his relationship with Bill Murray, uh, which which was in um, which was touch and go. I think over the course of their uh, has been touch and go over the course of their relationship or their careers. Um, but that gopher was a was a divisive and yet um, symbolic of the success of the film. Yeah, they they needed something to kind of help tie things together a little bit. I mean, initially it was just one scene. I, my understanding is it was the scene when when it takes the the ball and and the uh, the flag and Dangerfield says that kangaroo just ate my ball. That was it, and it was a, it was one of the assistants with a little puppet and basically kind of you know reached his hand up, grabbed the ball, and pulled it. And that was all there was. Luckily, uh, I, I can't remember who it was, that one of the producers, I believe, uh, said, you know, we got to, this, this is going to be something that we can actually use to help, help tie this together more. And they, um, they got, uh, yeah, they got Dykstra to actually make this gopher that like had little ears that moved and it really gave it a personality. And it became this element that became a great foil to, uh, to Bill Murray, who really had a chance to expand his part. And, and it created this kind of this indelible character that is, it really is a nonsense character, but it does help ground the film in the absurdity. And it does kind of help tie it together as we kind of see this gopher right at the beginning and we see him kind of going through the film. We see how it, he, you know, at the beginning, uh, Ted Knight's character sees the gopher and gets all upset about that. That inter- ends up introducing us to Bill Murray's character. And of course, it, then he ties in at the very end and how, how the whole thing kind of blows up. And it's, it's a, great, uh, a great thing that really just helps build the climax of the film and makes it, uh, makes it really fun. It's a great way to introduce kids to grown-up uh, comedies, don't you think? <laughs> And I, I say that only half sure. off the cuff, right? Because this is like this is the first uh, grown-up sort of ribald comedy that I ever really wanted to see. That that you know, I saw that the, the cover of the VHS, right? I mean, it, it came out, and I was I was too young to see it. You know, I mean, I, it took me a while to actually be able to see it because it was you know, I was I was too young in 1980 um, to see this film and. Uh, by the time I could see it, it was it was the thing that I wanted Dad to show me. I think we had it on Betamax. That's funny. And uh, and it was that gopher. I was like, I got to see the thing with the gopher. I don't even know what that's. I don't even know what it's all about, but I've got to see it. And so it, this was my first sort of sex comedy, kind of uh, that that kind of teen romp. Um, how do you know? This is an interesting. This movie is is kind of an interesting part of of Ramus's 
career, right? His his career making films. Because one of the things that I think is so interesting about his work is that he starts out very much as the renegade comic. You know, he's trying to to sort of put um, put rebellion in the mouths of of um, you know these smart ass characters, and and this obviously kind of spun out of his SCTV days, his his college days, his early um, his early writing. But he is you can trace his transformation as a man over the course of his transformation as a filmmaker, leading almost directly from Caddyshack and Stripes through Ghostbusters uh, to, uh, you know, Analyze This and Groundhog Day, um, where you see him just really mature and actually using comedy as a way um, to, to tell some much more sophisticated stories about growing up. And and so I'm wondering how you reflect on on that angle of Caddyshack on on how well this tells a story of uh, kind of the story of young people and what they aspire to by the role models that the adults are displaying for them in this film. Certainly, I mean, having come off of things like uh, uh, Meatballs before this and National Lampoon's Animal House. Uh, there is something to be said for kind of that place in his life uh, as he kind of was writing these and then Caddyshack, uh, Stripes, Vacation. It it is kind of an interesting way to kind of look at how he was kind of growing and kind of, uh, you know, moving through life as he uh, was telling these different stories. Some of it is just like, I think, you know, you look at a lot of other stuff in his career, you know, Back to School, Club Paradise, Armed and Dangerous, uh, some of it I don't think fits quite as well in that. But I do think if you're looking at stuff that he's really focusing on directing, I think that there's an interesting an interesting element to that that uh, that I yeah, I think that you can say is in there. Talking about the kids, because the kids I think get a little bit short shrift in, in Caddyshack, right? And they're the and some of the funniest moments are at the you know, as a result of, of the kids being being kids on this golf course. And 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 I think what's so interesting when you look at it is that I I am I think the reason the film works for me right now is because uh, they ended up cutting as much as they did and giving us just the just the right amount of absurdity from the kids. I yeah, the kids are what I have the most problems with. In oh. this film. <laughs> the oh. everything everything relating to the pool scene, like I, it just it's that to me is just kind of like it's kind of comical nonsense. The the water ballet, the uh, the duty I always think is kind of funny. But the, uh, like, why does everybody jump into the pool with their clothes on? I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that I'm... Because they just, only have 15 minutes. Yeah, I know. It just But the whole thing just seems a little absurd to me. I, I don't know. I, I don't get into their story as much. I really... I, watching this again, Ted Knight came out as the person that I most enjoyed watching. He is so much fun to watch and, and watching his balance between being high strung and kind of being kind of that, that uh, you know, wearing that that uh, perfect facade, I think is just so much fun. And I just love watching him and the way that he would react with Spalding when Spalding would do something. <laughs> Double like, turds. Uh, just like, get your foot off the boat. <laughs> Everything about him was just, was just spot on perfect. And I could have just watched more and more of him, especially as he was dealing with uh, uh, Rodney Dangerfield. Like the relationships between the adults were really what I was enjoying. And I 
I found myself wishing that, you know, I, or just appreciating that they cut so much of the caddies out because I don't think their story is actually very interest, interesting. Well, that's the whole, that that's exactly my point, right? Is that, And that's why I think I appreciate the story of the caddies because as now as a, an adult and a grown man, I, I look back at that and I think, I, you know, it's easy for me to supplant my own memories with the experience that I would have wanted as a teenager at, at the golf course at Bushwood. I don't know. I, I, I yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I'm just saying that I would have been fine if the caddies weren't in it at all. <laughs> oh, I don't think it would have worked. I don't think no, it would have worked. I, I, I think you I need don't the either. I, I, I don't are, know. If... You are showing your age is what you're showing is an old get off my lawn. You are the Ted Knight of this conversation. Maybe I am. Maybe I am the I Danny am. Noonan. But it's it's not that I wouldn't get rid of... Or, gosh, I don't know. I'm torn. I like Danny. I like elements of his story throughout this. It's just like... Maybe it's just the pool scene. Maybe it is just the pool scene that I just find to be... Uh, kind of a bridge too far for me. I can't believe that. That that is like the pinnacle of of absurdity uh, in the film. And I think the fact that it's in the voice of the kids, uh, it it just totally works for me. That that the scene, first of all, that the scene is broken up. It's split uh, between the the water aerobic or the, the synchronized swimming sequence uh, and the duty sequence uh, with the the perfect dive from uh, Cindy Morgan. Um, I, I think is is just it's just pitch perfect uh, sort of sex comedy right where everybody stops and the the glasses come down on the nose and it just it reminds me of everything uh, of my you know angst ridden youth and, and of course then the duty is the the evacuation of the pool and the punchline to that joke is two scenes later when Bill Murray takes a bite of it is awesome. <laughs> It is awesome, and that wouldn't work if we didn't have how if we didn't get to see how they actually use the pool. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I'm just torn on it. I guess maybe it's just the water ballet and just every, I don't know. I I, I I agree with you. You're making me agree with you, and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I am a fan of the kids. I vote for kids. Um, I appreciate kids, and Andy, uh, of course, is defunding the kids. Get off my lawn. That's what we're saying. <laughs> what we're saying is canceling programs for kids. That's, That's right. Andy. I I really enjoy the grownups. I think that it's a it's a great a great bunch from the the ones who are playing golf. Uh, Ted Knight. I already talked about Rodney Dangerfield is just fantastic. It, he's so over the top and obnoxious in all the right ways. It just is so strange to watch him, and he just seems like he was born to do this sort of insanity. And uh, and he and he did. I mean, you watch uh, Back to School or anything else that he uh, did on screen, and it is this the same sort of character. He works really well at it. Yeah, he he's hand to glove. I mean, he found he found this guy, this voice, and and really leveraged it well. And I think what works, you know, what works really so well for me is that particularly for these central characters, you know, you they they match really well. You know, each of the of the the kids kind of has an. An, an adult character and we watch their stories kind of un, unravel in parallel and what's so interesting about it to me is that it's the adults who end up doing the thing that is most juvenile right they they solve their differences through uh, by doing this thing that is illegal and uh, and really just downright dumb it's the adults who end up doing things that are ultimately ridiculously destructive right it's this adult who destroys the club um, by blowing it up, you know, and, and uh, I, I think that's one of the messages that I like so much about it is is that the youth, even though they fight and they're rambunctious and they do drugs, uh, ultimately they're the ones who kind of have a clear head. 
Yes. You just, you hate the kids so much that that's what I get. <laughs> your point makes sense. <laughs> All right. What else is on your list? Uh, Ted Knight, uh, I already said he's just my favorite part. He's just so funny. I mean, it's it's interesting because he did not have a huge movie career. He really is a TV guy. I grew up with him in Too Close for Comfort. And of course, everyone probably remembers him in the Mary Tyler Moore show. I don't know if everybody does, but he was kind of a key part in that show. And his movie career, pretty limited. In fact, I think this was actually his last film. And then he ended up passing away six years later from uh, cancer that he had had for uh, quite a while that he was fighting it. Uh, Yeah, Ted Knight was fantastic. Apparently, he was very much the character uh, that he played. He carried a comb. That is the uh, that is the uh, the uh, anecdote from Chevy Chase. He carried a comb. Did not like his hair getting mussed up. Did not like his hair getting mussed up, and (laughs) and combed his hair twenty times a day. Yes, according to Vegas. I guess uh, uh, Chevy Chase actually. Must his hair once, or I think it was in, in one of the shots when he was just like, uh, my father never liked you, that bit, he musses his hair, and I guess that was, <laughs> Ted was not very happy with Chevy Chase for doing that. He uh, he, he was absolutely terrific in this film. Yes. Uh, his, I, you know, I think you, you mentioned the relationship he has, with, you know, obviously his, his nephew, but for me, the, the big... Uh, you know the the pinnacle scenes for Ted Knight were with Chevy Chase. I mean his his conversations, his wit with uh, Ty Webb um, were you know absolutely uh, perfect joke writing. Uh, you know when you look at at just the the straight man uh, role. I you know I say he's that way with everybody. I mean I think he's so great with Michael O'Keefe playing Danny. Yeah, the bits where he's just like you know, he's uh, oh well I'm gonna be doing my uh, christening my new sloop with one you know and then he's just like what are you doing? He's like oh I'm not I'm free. He's like oh why don't you come on over and mow my lawn then? <laughs> <laughs> That's such an interesting thing because he bounces back between being kind of the goofy character and the straight man because he's definitely not the straight man with um, you know with. Uh, with Danny, uh, and and yet he is the he's he is the conservative uh, bull with Ty Webb, and I think that's he just is is great every time he's on screen. And you know Michael O'Keefe, I think is great as Danny. I think he he brings a lot of the just what you were talking about as far as the youth. I think he brings that to the screen. And regardless of any problems I had with kind of the presentation of the youth in the film, I do think Michael O'Keefe has a a nice balance of kind of playing that opposite these older characters, whether it's Ty or uh, the judge or any of them. I mean, I think that he actually kind of ended up being the the perfect actor to to carry that off. Isn't he funny to watch his career since this film? Yeah, he is so all over the place. It's amazing. Oh, and this was coming. This movie was coming off of an Oscar nomination for supporting actor opposite uh, uh, Duvall in The Great Santini. Yeah, that's right. God, it was right after, wasn't it? Yeah, this was a, a year later, and then yeah, he's just been all over the place, man. He is just, uh, and he's just everywhere. He's one of those actors who's just in everything. It's just crazy. I mean, he was in, you know, Michael Clayton a few years ago. For yeah. God's sake, yeah, yeah. crazy. Hot chick with Rob Schneider. Oh yeah, you know he brought that just that really straight youth character. I don't know what to do with my life, and I am stuck in absolute absurdity. How am I possibly going to get out? 
Yeah. I just I loved it. I thought it was great. No, he's good. Who else? Anybody else on your list? Uh, Bill Murray. I mean, he is uh, he is Bill Murray. And you know, considering this that the character of uh, Carl was was non-existent on the page. I mean, didn't have a single line in the script. I mean, he ended up creating a character that. I mean, everybody's pretty quotable, but I feel like his like there's nothing that comes out of his mouth that's just not a, something you can quote from this film, you know? Absolutely. Um, you know, the number of scenes, to hear Harold Ramis talk about it, the scenes that were just, as you say, written on set, the scenes that were, the the iconic scene between Bill Murray and Chevy Chase. And and this was one of the things that, you know, to hear the producer talk about the film was this, um, was this idea that, um, you know, here are these two guys who were, you know, really the biggest names in the film, Bill Murray and Chevy Chase, that they, the, you know, when they went into filming, they didn't have a scene together. Like, they, they were never on on screen at the same time. Right. Uh, they they went to lunch with Harold Ramis and Doug Kenny, and they wrote the scene, and then they went back, locked themselves in, in the room, and, and shot the scene. Uh, and that is the that is the fantastic play 36 holes, get stoned to the bejesus belt on it that night sequence. Mm-hmm. Which is, the whole thing is quotable. Pool, pond. I use that every day. <laughs> Somebody in my life pond gets pool, pool or pond. A lot of these guys actually all kind of came up together in in uh, their careers. Harold Ramis, uh, Chevy Chase, and uh, Brian Doyle Murray, and uh, Bill Murray. Like they all kind of were in the same circles, and some of them came from uh, from uh, Second City. Second City, and uh, then they all kind of ended up. It seemed like they kind of got funneled into National Lampoon, and they all were kind of working with with. Uh, with uh, Douglas Kenny in, and he's one of the founders of National Lampoon, and uh, they were kind of doing the the National Lampoon's uh, Radio Hour, and they kind of got a lot of their comedy training there. Um, they actually, uh, when Animal House, National Lampoon's Animal House, was getting put together, they actually wrote um, the role of uh, Otter for uh, Chevy Chase, but he actually was. At that point, he was uh, finished uh, his first season of Saturday Night Live and was trying to do something a little more serious. So went to work on Foul Play. and um, and But after that, they, they did end up working together on Caddyshack, um, lucky for all of us, because that gave us the wonderful, strange, uh, just, I don't know, zen performance of Chevy Chase in this, in this film, which... Uh, is just so much fun. Uh, okay. What else do we have? Anything else uh, hot on your list as we uh, look through these people? There are so many people. Yeah. There's so many people. Yeah, there are a lot. I mean, Cindy Morgan, geez, I mean, she was easy to fall in love with. She didn't do much other than this in Tron. I mean, she actually has done a bit of things, but those, are, I guess, are the things that she's mostly well known for. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sarah Holcomb, who was Maggie, I mean, geez, she did Animal House and a few other films, and Caddyshack was her last film. So a couple, a couple years of uh, working in films, and then she was out. So all the same kind of films, too. I mean, right. I haven't seen, I haven't seen Walk Proud, but judging by the cover, or Mr. Mike's Mondo video, yeah, right. Henry Wilcoxon was uh, of. Anybody on the uh, on the cast, I mean, he has been around forever. I mean, he started acting in the 30s, and uh, just one of those guys who had been in many, many things. He plays the bishop, the guy who's out with uh, with Bill Murray out in the driving uh, rain trying to get that uh, 
last nine in before it really starts, before it really starts raining. Uh, but geez, I mean, he had been in just so many films. Uh, this was also know. toward the end of his career. Yeah, this was toward the end of his career. He only did a few more films afterward. But uh, I mean, he was a guy who really kept busy. I, uh, Mrs. Miniver, uh, he was in Mrs. Miniver, Greatest mm-hmm. Show on Earth, Cecil yeah. B. DeMille. Look at that, Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah, Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Yeah. The last person I was really going to just mention or talk about was uh, Douglas Kenny, and just the this you know quite a story that uh, that he had. I mean, you know, he was uh, one of these guys who ended up founding National Lampoon, as I talked about, and they wrote some very uh, funny things like Board of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings parody, and the uh, National Lampoon's uh, what was the yearbook that they put out the uh, nineteen sixty two uh, nineteen sixty four high school yearbook parody. And, uh, I mean, you can still get those uh, through Amazon. Just things that were very funny, very popular. And he had a really good way of kind of finding that humor in things um, and and just spoofing it. He he was producing uh, this film. And from what I read, he really kind of got, um, felt a little affronted, I guess, that he wanted to produce it, but the, the studio wanted to or I guess felt more safe having uh, kind of a real producer on board. And, uh, and if, so they had, um, so I can't, why am I blanking on the producer's name? It's uh, Peter Gruber and John Peters. Right. Um, those two, why uh, he was feeling kind of affronted that the, that those other producers were kind of doing the work and, and just, he didn't feel as connected like he did on animal house. And uh, you know, he got into, well, everybody was really doing drugs on the making of this film. I mean, there's a lot of drugs and drinking and just uh, wild parties and everything. But he really ended up feeling um, just kind of uh, kind of distanced, distant a little bit. And he drank a lot. And at one of the press screenings, when they first showed this, um, he actually like went off on all the people in attendance. And then he passed out. And shortly after the film premiered, like about a month later, um, you know, they Chevy Chase, who is one of his really good friends, had taken him to Hawaii to try to kind of, kind of help him, kind of calm down, just kind of get through everything, and and get him out of this depression that he was in. And then when Chevy Chase had left, um, he ended up going and 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 killing himself. I mean, no one really knows if he killed himself, but he went up onto a cliff and all that was left on the top was, was his shoes. And his body was found several days later uh, in some of the rocks down at the bottom. And uh, people don't know if he was up there and he slipped, if he was, uh, you know, going up there and he did kill himself. Uh, Nobody really knows, but it's a very tragic story. Young. Yeah. Young. Yeah. Very young. 33. Yeah. Wow. And yet, he managed to get his name on Caddyshack 2. As a, <laughs> yes, lucky him. So in terms of, you know, achieving your aspirations. There you go. Well, you know, I mean, the nice thing about um, Caddyshack, even though he felt it was a failure, I mean, he didn't like the cut. He didn't like the gopher, what they did with that. He, when it was released, I mean, the, the critics just really railed on it. Nobody uh, seemed to like it. But um, it ended up being a really popular film. It did well for itself. And it's grown in popularity. I mean, it's really kind of this this comedy status that it's achieved now, especially in the in the sports world and the golf world in particular. I think Tiger Woods says it's his favorite film. It's a very popular film, and people just love this film. And he never got to see that. 
And so that's, that's, I think, where a lot of the tragedy lies. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah. Like I said, this is a film that uh, has has uh, really influenced people. I mean, there's uh, some people, you know, there's a book out, The Book of Caddyshack, everything you ever wanted to know about the greatest movie ever made. You know, people really, really think that this film is uh, end-all, be-all. I mean, you can... I, Kenny Loggins still sells gopher dolls at his concerts. I mean, you can go to Amazon <laughs> and search for Caddyshack. Not just the movie, but you can find um, Bushwood uh, uh, Country Club golf hats and apparel. You can find gopher um, head covers for your uh, for your clubs. You can find golf balls with the uh, the Bushwood logo on them. I mean, there's just so much stuff out there that is golf-related. And, I mean, this movie did a lot of things for the golf world. So I think... I think uh, a lot of people in the golf world are very thankful that this movie uh, made it a, a much more fun and enjoyable sport to kind of watch and participate in. I it it certainly uh, I certainly find it inspiring uh, as and I think I you know this is this is what got got us sort of writing. I I kind of attribute Caddyshack to what what uh, certainly what got me writing. Uh, sketch comedy in college was was just I wonder how I I wonder how I could distill from these rules the you know or distill from this film some rules that would define what's funny and start practicing it I mean this is I'm I, this is an inspirational film certainly in that regard for many indeed it is how'd you uh how did how did it do you said it didn't uh, didn't start as well as uh, as it maybe should have yeah, I mean, it, you know, it cost about six million to make, which is about uh, just under seventeen million in today's dollars. Uh, you know, decent sized budget. It ended up grossing domestically. I couldn't find anything internationally, but domestically, it ended up grossing about just under forty million. So, I mean, it it did well for itself. It wasn't like a huge box office draw when it first came out, and like I said, the critics certainly didn't uh, didn't care for it, but. It did find its audience, and it grossed just under forty million, which in today's dollars is just under one hundred thirteen million. So all told, it ended up doing pretty well for itself and making about nine hundred seventy thousand dollars per finished minute in adjusted dollars. Not bad. Not too bad. Not bad. I say we rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and sign up for an account and friend us and start with Caddyshack because that'll make everything else uh, easier. There you go. Yeah. What's, right, our, well, what's our rule? How are you? How are you approaching Caddyshack as you rank these other movies? Rank it against other movies? Well, I mean, not critically, <laughs> certainly. <laughs> it's. It, I guess it's just you know it's a fun film. It's not something that I put on really uh, too often. So I guess I'm just kind of uh, my rule will be uh, a lot of it I think is going to boil down to kind of an enjoyment factor. But, I mean, if it comes up against, you know, a, a really well-made film, I'm going to have to take that into account for them. And, you know, kind of, uh, it may lose to some more serious films that I may not watch as often, but I feel are just stronger filmmaking. I'm just going to go by which movie makes me laugh more. <laughs> so okay. let's roll the dice. That's a, that's a dangerous game to play. <laughs> All right, Caddyshack or The Bad Seed? The bad seed was hysterical. <laughs> oh, Caddyshack! Uh, but I'm, I'm Caddyshack on this one. Indeed, Caddyshack or Sleepless in Seattle? 
Now, see here, I say Sleepless in Seattle. It doesn't make me laugh more, but it's a better film. I know you love it. It's a great film. It is, but I don't. Th- I don't know. When I compare it to Caddyshack, I don't think I can. I don't think I can do it. Are we gonna rock paper scissors? I might have to rock paper scissors this stupid thing. Wow! All right. All right. Here we go. Let's do it. One, One two, two, three. three papers. Oh man! Wow! Wow! Dang! That All was, right. You know what? I just had to be the paper. <laughs> be the paper, Danny. Yeah. Be the paper, Pete. Be the paper. All right, Caddyshack takes it. Caddyshack or The Innocents? <laughs> Again, comedy <laughs> to comedy. <laughs> I'm going to say uh, The Innocents. Yeah, The Innocents. Thank you. <laughs> Caddyshack or Moneyball, Pete? This one's all you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh dear. Uh, I'm going to have to go Moneyball. Yes. Yes, indeed. Caddyshack or The Social Network? <laughs> In terms of, if we base it on, uh, you know, true stories, <laughs> degrees of truth, um, I, you know, I found um, I'm probably going to have to go with the social network. There you go. Caddyshack or Scarlet Street. Oh, geez. Scarlet Street. This is a terrible game. Whoever <laughs> came up with this stupid thing? Scarlet Street. <laughs> Caddyshack or Out of the Past? Out of the Past? Yeah, out of the for past. Me. All right. Jeez. I know. It's rough. Caddyshack or The Curious Case of Benjamin Button? Benjamin Button. Here I would say Benjamin Button, but I would actually say Caddyshack is definitely the more fun film to watch. <laughs> you could say that about all of them. No, I couldn't. The more I, fun film? Well, the more fun, yeah. But I mean, ca- the curious case of Benjamin Button, you really have to be in the mood to watch that movie. <laughs> okay. I'm okay. actually going to vote for Caddyshack here, believe it or not. Are you serious? Yeah. I will take that. I will absolutely <laughs> I'm surprising take that. myself, but there you go. I can't believe that. I can't either. 52 out of 213, Pete. Well, it's too, it's definitely too low. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw this going into, and I saw this as a new top fiver, but I, okay. Okay. That would be hard to get up it. to the top five for this. <laughs> it's fun. But this is we... fun. Uh, and this, uh, you know, I, I, I'm really, I, I really enjoyed reading up on Harold Ramis and his career. And, and I think that's the part that, insofar as Caddyshack, it is what it is. It's a really funny movie with some incredible performances. But I think for me, the big lesson out of this and is, and will continue to be is, is how interesting this guy's career is and how he used comedy and comedy writing to establish his own voice in the mouths of a select few other actors who can pull him off so well. I just, I think he's just great. And I, I look forward to our next film, which is? Uh, the next one we're going to be uh, going to see is Stripes. What do you think about it? Are you are you nervous about this one? I don't know. I mean, this is the one that I've never really seen. I've only seen bits and pieces of it, so it's hard for me to say. Now, this is an interesting one because, I mean, Caddyshack, he, he was a co-writer on and he directed. This one he is acting in and he just worked as writer, and Ivan Reitman directed this one. Mm-hmm. So it'll be curious uh, to uh, – I'll be – I'm curious to see how how, uh, how I like this one. I me mean, I, too. Yeah. What, uh, what is your star rating for – 
for old uh, Caddyshack. I mean, you're talking about top top five of our list here. You, is this a five star one for you? Uh, I mean, yeah, it's on the list of comedies. <laughs> yes, it's absolutely a five star comedy for me. Um, I, but uh, against you know, network. Doesn't, That's right. It doesn't, this is the hard it doesn't part. quite hit five stars for me, so I'm going to give it four and a half stars because. No, it's of course it's a five star comedy for me. It, it that gives it means it's five stars are equal, Andy. Stop trying to <laughs> monkey around here. Star is a star. Give it all five. You're you're saying it, man. You're saying it. Okay. I had That's... to convince myself. It took me a little bit. A star is a star. Star is a star. Well, I'm a three and a half, so we'll balance three that and out. a half. It's it's a three and a half film that I can still really enjoy. I'm you know I I'm, I have a hard time giving it. It's because <laughs> you hate you that. hate teenagers. Exactly. <laughs> Get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I gotta go to bed. All right, I'm gonna go out and do some night putting. Okay, okay. so you know how Amazon, uh, usually people are really upset about the transfer. Yes. That's a yes. that's a perennial favorite, that the, it needs to be. The transfers, uh, the studio should be ashamed of themselves. Well, in this case, uh, it turns out there are two versions of this film. And uh, here, here is uh, Karen Kincaid writes, uh, I did not realize that there are two versions, a clean version, which they show on TV, and a R-rated version. We bought this film to show my 96-year-old mother-in-law. Well, boobs were flashing, and the language was not good. My husband was really embarrassed that I had bought this for him to show her. I guess I didn't properly read what this version was. Oh, well, this did not help me earn any good mother-in-law points. <laughs> uh, that's, that's just fantastic. Awesome. Although, you know, 96-year-old mother-in-law, she's probably seen it all anyway. That's right. Give me a break. Back in the day. They, that got? was nothing compared to what I was doing in my youth. What do you uh, got? Well, JB says, um, gave it a one star. Was Bill Murray supposed to be mentally challenged? They never said, and the ending was very abrupt. Plus, couldn't tell who was hooking up with who. Too many blondes. <laughs> yeah, okay. I actually think that was the tagline on the DVD. <laughs> Caddyshack, <laughs> too many blondes. <laughs> I love it. Oh well, thanks Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season five, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. I'm getting better at this. 1939. Gone with the Wind. Wizard of Oz. Goodbye, Mr. Chip. Uh, out of the Baskervilles. 
Nice. Meryl Streep. Yeah. Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, Sophie's Choice. Uh, French <laughs> Lieutenant's Women. Nice. How about Naughty Children? Uh, uh, the Bad Seed. Uh, Village of the Damned. The Innocents. Nice. Uh, your favorite, David Mamet. Clintary Glenn Ross. Oh, I figured you'd nail that one. We've covered lots of great movies that started as books. Books like Metropolis, Manhunt. Ministry of Fear, The Great Escape. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Audible.